Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have told us things about the end, things that will be important for us to know. Help us now as we look into Revelation, as we look into your word. We pray that we would hear from you and that you would do your wonderful work of transformation in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're walking through the book of Revelation here at Cornerstone. It's a wonderful book with many, many wonderful things to tell us about what our walk with God should look like and about what God will bring about for his people at the end. But there is also a major theme of wrath in the book. And in fact, in chapters 15 through 20, which we are right in the middle of right now, it deals very heavily with God's wrath being poured out on the wicked. And one simple way to understand the book of Revelation is that some people will face wrath from God and others will receive eternal blessing with him. So before we talk about wrath today, I just want to remind you that I am confident of better things in your case. For those of you who, who know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the wrath that we're going to hear about, especially that wrath that is reserved for Satan and his followers, we do not have to face that. But there is wrath to talk about, and God wants us to know about it. In chapters 15 through 16, which we talked about the last couple of Sundays, we read about seven bowls of judgment being poured out onto the earth. And in chapters 17 and 18, which we'll look at today, it's a long section of scripture, but it's, it's kind of all on one topic. It kind of lives out the, the pouring out of those bowls to show us what it looks like as those bowls were poured out. And in these chapters, there is a lot of symbolism. Perhaps in chapter 17 especially, some of the most difficult symbolism in the entire book of Revelation. And for those of you who I told you to keep score at home all the way back in January, the number of times that I said I don't know exactly what that means, uh, that's going to come up quite a bit today. I don't know all of the symbolism here. Uh, but just a quick side note on that. Any of the symbolism in Revelation, if we don't understand it, two things. One, God knows it. He's, he's revealed it to us. He sees the future. He knows about it. He is in control. Don't worry about it. And then the second thing is, uh, we're in good, good company if we don't understand some of the symbolism, especially the prophecies in the Bible. Did you know that before Jesus came, people argued about whether he would be the suffering servant of the Old Testament or the conquering king of the Old Testament? So which one is it? They, they fought about this. They argued about this. And now we know he was both. They didn't quite make that connection. And I think that there might be some things in the book of Revelation that are about the end that perhaps we're not even meant to fully understand until the end comes. So the things that we're studying today are things that are yet to come, and we may not be intended to understand all of it. Perhaps one of the things I think is that it might just be in there so that when it does come, we might recognize it and be like, oh yeah, ten kings, didn't the Bible say something about that? Okay. So, I don't fully understand it right now. I'm okay with that. If you understand it, you can write a book about it or something. And, um. Okay, so what we're going to do today, first I'm going to read through chapters 17 through 18, and then I want to walk through it just explaining some of what's going on there, and then I'm going to end by pointing out two really important things that I think we should all get from these two chapters. So, Revelation 17 and 18. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, 
that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with them will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood 
and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies and souls of men. They will say, The fruit you longed for has gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. Thus ends our reading. Like I said, I now want to walk through these chapters explaining some of what's going on. And first, from the first two verses, we're told that this is punishment that comes from God. God has seen the wickedness of the earth and he now brings punishment. And specifically, this wickedness has come from the woman called the great prostitute in verse 1. It's, a, it's not a compliment. Uh, by her influence, she tempted the people of the earth to sin. And in this vision, vision, she is seen riding a scarlet beast with seven heads and ten horns. So right away, we should probably try to figure out who is this woman, who is this beast. Now first, the great prostitute, uh, I think might perhaps best be described as a personification of the world, a personification of the sinfulness and corruption that is so prevalent in our world. And specifically, she is given the name Babylon. Now, it's interesting because by the time that Revelation was written, I read that Babylon was just a small fishing village. It used to be one of the great empires of the earth and led many people into sin. Uh, But now, probably in Revelation, it stands as a symbol for the, the powers of this world that lead people into sin. There's a verse in the Old Testament that might help us understand the symbolism. In Jeremiah 51, 7, it says, Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, they have now gone mad. So again, the symbolism here is of drunkenness that comes from Babylon, from the world. The people drink until they're drunk and they stumble and fall, and God will bring punishment on it. Now, uh, the, the prostitute also, if you look down at verse 18, called the great city, uh, most commentators agree that that's referring to Rome. Because again, Babylon wasn't the powerful empire of the day, Rome was. 
Um, there's another reason, we'll talk about that in a little bit, why we think that's Rome. But it's a common theme throughout history that, that those who have power often abuse their power and lead others into sin. They lead such decadent lives that they lead others into sin. And I think that's what's going on here. Okay, then let's take a look at the beast. From verse 3, we see that the beast has seven heads and ten horns and was covered with blasphemous names. The book of Revelation speaks of Satan in chapter 12 and two beasts that follow him in chapter, in chapter 13. And here, this beast in Revelation 17 is probably similar to the beast that we read about in chapter 13, the first beast in chapter 13. And here the beast symbolizes the satanic power behind the sinfulness of the world. So if the, the great prostitute represents the, the sinfulness of the world, the beast symbolizes the power behind it. And some theologians like to call this beast the Antichrist, but a little trivia for you here, uh, the, the title Antichrist never shows up in the book of Revelation. The only place we see that title is in the books of First and Second John. So he very well may be the Antichrist, but Revelation just calls him the beast, so that's what we'll call him. Um, Satan and these two beasts come on very strongly on the scene in chapters 12 and 13, but in chapter 12... Satan knew that his time was short, and here already we see the beginning of the fall, and we'll see that more completely in chapters 19 and 20. So their time is short. Now we get to the part of Revelation that's really difficult to understand, okay? So bear with me here. Um, this beast is said to have seven heads and ten horns, which symbolize kings. The seven are split up into five that have already fallen, one that is, and we should understand that to be present during the time that the book was written. So it's history for us, but at the time it was present. And then there was one king that was yet to come. And then the beast himself is an eighth king that belongs to the seven kings. Now the seven heads are also said to be seven hills. And Rome, have you ever heard this? Rome is the city on seven hills. So that's one of the reasons that we're pretty certain that it, at least in part the symbolism here has something to do with Rome. And who precisely these seven kings are, I'm not going to tell you. Why? I just want to keep that from... No, I don't. I, it's because I don't know. There are lots and lots of guesses out there, but there's very little consensus. Some of the guesses have to do with counting the Roman emperors. So they look at the five that had already fallen, and they try to figure out, okay, counting back from when John wrote, who were those five? Well, people, first of all, they disagree about when John wrote the book. Second of all, they don't know where to start counting. And third of all, they don't know where to stop counting. And there's, there were three empires who kind, or emperors who kind of ruled together for a couple of years, and they don't know whether to count that as one or three. So it's really difficult if you're trying to count the emperors to figure out which ones it might be. There's another option that you could count these not as emperors, but as empires. So perhaps you could look at five empires that had already fallen by the time that John wrote this book, and then one that was, and then another one that was to come. But even then, there's still not a lot of consensus or agreement. So again, um, I don't know exactly who these seven kings are, but it might, again, be one of those things that we'll have more clarity on when the time comes, if we're around for that. The ten kings are maybe a little bit easier to understand because it tells us that those ten kings are future kings. They represent kings who will give their power to the beast. And what is interesting is when they do give their power to the beast, they will turn on the prostitute and destroy her. And what's interesting about that to me is that they had been in an alliance. The prostitute was doing the wicked work of the beast and of Satan, and then at the end, the beast is going to turn on her and destroy her. 
It's a kind of civil war that we had already been told about all the way back in chapter 6 would happen. Okay, so that's chapter 17. You got it all? Okay. Um, chapter 18 is a lot easier to understand. It starts out with judgment being pronounced from heaven. God has seen all the wickedness of earth and judgment comes because of it. And although most of this chapter deals with judgment, there is a, a ray of light in verse 4 where God tells his people to get out of there, to flee from the sin so that they don't incur judgment along with the wicked of the earth. And then after this judgment is pronounced, we see three different groups of people lamenting over, the, over Babylon's judgment. So it's the kings of the earth, the merchants, and those who earned their living from Babylon's trade. They all cry out when they see the destruction, but theirs is not a cry of repentance. Theirs is a cry of horror when they see judgment coming. And I think theirs is also a cry of selfishness because they had become rich by trading with Babylon, and now that Babylon is destroyed, their way of life is also destroyed. And then finally in chapter 18, heaven rejoices at the punishment handed down on the wicked and then a final pronouncement of final judgment is handed down to Babylon. And the rejoicing here comes because of the justice of God. It's not that people rejoice when they see people getting destroyed, it's that they rejoice in the justice of a holy God, bringing about what is right. Okay, so we've now read these chapters, we've kind of walked through, through them a little bit. What I want to do now is I want to point out two themes that I think are very important themes we should get. The first theme is the same as the title of my sermon. So theme number one, sin and judgment. I hope it's obvious to you by now, uh, whether this is the first time you've heard it sitting here today or whether you've been here for the entire Revelation series, I hope you've seen that sin will bring about judgment from God. So let's take a closer look at the sins we see in these chapters. And in 17.4, we see two of them specifically. It talks about the abominable things and the filth of the adulteries of the prostitute. The abominable things simply refer to that which is detestable. God has told us that there are certain things in his word, certain things that are not right. And then adulteries has a double meaning. Let me explain. First, adulteries can obviously refer to sexual sin. The word refers to a twisting in God's plan. Think about this. this uh, God created men and women and created marriage, and it was present before the fall. So it was a good thing that God provided, but what Satan has done is he has twisted it. So I think that this word adulteries, the way I understand it, it's a twisting of God's good plan to bring it into something that is out of bounds. Uh, one of Satan's best temptations is to get us to lust. And Jesus helped us to understand that, that adultery and lust are really the same kind of things. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he told us that adultery is, is even the thing that goes on in our heart or in our eyes or, or with our hands. So Satan's idea is to twist something that God had made and tempt us to use it in a way that is out of bounds. And let me just stop here by way of application. And I, I like to say this here occasionally because I want you all to know it. I want you to hear that if you are caught in any sexual sin, whether that's an affair or maybe it's stuff that you're looking at on the internet or on the TV that you know you shouldn't be looking at, or even if it's just thoughts that you're letting linger in your mind, flee from them. God has something better for you and it's easy to get caught up in that net and it's easy to say, well, everybody else is doing it or it's easy to think you can get away with it. 
But that is not the life for you to live. If you're in that, flee from it. So the word adultery can mean sexual sin like that, but also adultery takes on a figurative meaning in the Bible. And one of the ways that I like to explain this is by thinking about the book of Hosea. Do you know that that short book in the Old Testament? It's a wonderful book. Here's something pretty fascinating about it. In Hosea, ten times words for adultery are used, but also ten times words for idols or idolatry are used. And figuratively speaking, they kind of mean the same thing, that adultery and idolatry are very similar. So one form of adultery, literally speaking, is that when a married couple, they have made their commitment to each other. And I, and I just did these marriage vows yesterday with Dan and Jess, and I asked them, forsaking all others, will you be faithful to each other? So that's the commitment that they're making. And when one spouse breaks that, that is adultery. Now, spiritually speaking, we have made a commitment to God. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we give our lives to Him and we enter into a relationship with Him. When our hearts then go to any idol, and whether that's a, a carved image of stone, or whether it's money, or whether it's things that you like to do, whatever it is, if our hearts go away from God, that is idolatry, and spiritually speaking, it's a form of adultery. So we're supposed to worship God. And God describes himself as a jealous God. And that's a good thing, right? Those of you who know God know that it's a good thing that he's a jealous God. He wants you. Think about a marriage. Those of you that are married, you don't want to share your spouse with another. And that's how God is with us. He doesn't want to share our hearts with an idol. He wants all of us. So let's not give ourselves to any idol. Let's not fall into the temptation of sin living in any way that would dishonor God. You see, the great prostitute of chapter 17, this is interesting, she thought that she could ride the wave of sin. And, and when it talks about the waters there, it tells us that the, the water are, are people. That she got people to follow her in the ways of sin. And she thought that she could kind of ride on top of it. She thought that she could even ride that beast. Instead, she was destroyed by the very one she gave her life to. That's how sin works. It comes with a false pleasure, excuse me, a false promise of pleasure. But those who live for sin end up being mastered by it and destroyed in it. So we must be careful. We need to flee from sin. I love how it's said in Romans 6. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14 here. In the same way, and by the way, that's in the same way as Jesus does this, so... In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. Then listen to this part. For sin shall not be your master. Sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Now again, the picture of Revelation 17 is that those who thought they were using sin to their advantage ended up being mastered by it. Can you play with fire in your lap and not get burned? Anything you give yourself to besides Christ will destroy you. The great prostitute was destroyed by the powers of sin who turned on her. And then in 18, God himself brought down judgment on her. And, and don't worry, the, the beast and Satan and, and the other beast, they'll get their due as well. We'll see that in chapters 19 and 20. God will judge 
sin. He judges those abominable, abominable things and adulteries. There's a couple other sins, though. Let's look at them real quick. In chapter 17, 6, it talks about the sin of murder, that she, uh, the prostitute made herself drunk on the blood of saints. Also in 1824, Babylon is said to have killed not only prophets and saints, but also all who have been killed on the earth. So the ways of sin are, are guilty of all murder. And then there's one other sin I want to mention in chapter 18. It's the sin of turning money into an idol. In 18.3, part of the adultery that the kings of the earth committed with the great prostitute is that they joined in with her excessive luxuries. Now, don't misunderstand. Um, money in and of itself is not evil. We know that, right? I'm, I'm guessing a lot of you could quote that verse, right? It says, for the love of money is what? A root of all kinds of evil. I'm going to put this one up on there because it's so interesting how that verse goes on. 1 Timothy 6.10 is the verse. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Listen to this. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith. Think about that idolatry picture again. We are supposed to be in this relationship with God where we are committed to Him. But some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Going after money instead of going after God causes huge problems. So specifically on the topic of money, are any of you struggling with a wrong view of money, turning it into an idol? Does money ever get in your way of your devotion to God? Are you more eager to get luxury than you are to follow God? Or how willing are you to give your money to God? Okay. We've looked at a bunch of sins here in chapters 17 and 18. They're really bad. They're so bad that they incur judgment from God. And when we look at it like this, it seems obvious to us that we shouldn't live this way. But we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why would anybody live like this? Why would anybody follow the beast and the great prostitute to their demise? Well, there are some answers. And I think we have to look into our hearts, too, to, to see how we're doing as we think about these answers. One of the reasons that people would go into this type of sin is deception. There's a word used, it's translated as uh, led astray in 1823. By, by your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. It's a, it's a term from the world of navigation. So think about a ship traveling 2,000 years ago before they had GPS. How would they travel? Well, during the day, they'd maybe use the sun. During the night, they would use the stars. And the stars are actually pretty reliable for, for navigation. You can study the charts of the stars. You know where they are. You look at one of them, and you can figure out where you need to go. The problem is, if instead of picking a star to follow your path, you would pick a planet. In fact, the word for let astray comes from the word for planet. And you might be thinking, what? I don't get it. Well, think of it this way. The planets, like our planet, are in rotation around the sun. So uh, unlike a star, which is relatively fixed in the sky, a planet will be moving. And if you chart your course according to that planet, you will get way off course. And, and I think that's great, because think about what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. He is the Son, the Son of God. But... There are other heavenly bodies that we could follow. We, we read about them in Revelation. We can follow Satan. And we can be deceived. Now, I don't think that people think, well, hey, uh, maybe I should follow Satan today. Most people don't go about it like that. But Satan is in this world to deceive us, to give us those false promises. And sometimes, if we're being honest with ourselves, 
we are tempted. Satan works on evil desires, and sometimes those evil desires, even though we might know they're evil, sometimes they look good to us. And that's where deception comes from. And it leads to idolatry. I was listening to a sermon earlier, earlier this week where they said that all sin is idolatry. If God has a path for us to take and we reject that path and we go a different way, what we've done is we've replaced God with something. And, and let me say it this way. I, I think that there is, it's not a new idolatry because it's been around since the beginning of, uh, since the fall of Adam and Eve. But I think that there's an idolatry in America that, that's gaining traction. And it's the idolatry of self. I think that... that all too often in America, the way that people live, and it creeps into the church as well. It's not just people on the outside. I think that all too often that the way that people live is according to the ways of self. And our Bible becomes what we want. Our, our Holy Scripture becomes that which we think we should go after. And instead of seeking God and what He wants, we just ask ourselves, what do we want? I think, it's a, I think it's an idolatry that's very prevalent in our culture today. And we have to be careful that we do not worship self. That we, we do not spend so much of our time just seeking what we want that we actually set ourselves up as a God. And it probably has to do with pride too because it's very easy for us to go through this world assuming that we should simply do what we want to do. But if we do that... Again, we turn ourselves into a God. And if we live like that, we stop thinking about the one true God. Here's a chilling verse on this topic. I, I think this one should maybe, maybe stick with us for a little bit here. Psalm 10.4, it says, In all his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Anybody here ever been so busy with the things that you think are important in your life that you forget about God? In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. What a tragedy to live so completely for self that there's no room left for thinking about God. And again, it's, if we're honest, we can fall into that trap. So what's the corrective? If, if that's the problem, if that kind of sin brings about judgment from God, what should we do? Well, that leads me into our second theme today, which is worship. Sin leads to judgment. Worship helps us to be on the right track. In my study of the book of Revelation over the last eight months, I have come to the conclusion, and it's a conclusion now. I was, earlier on I was saying, I'm just kind of working with this, and now it's a conclusion. I think that worship is the main theme of the book of Revelation. You see, God is eternally worthy of worship. And what we see in the book of Revelation is a God who is worthy of worship. And so often the people in Revelation stop and give God praise. And our best life is the life in which we constantly look to God and live according to His ways. And as we live like that with our eyes on God, living the way that He wants us to, that is worship. Because worship isn't just the songs you sing. Worship is the life you live for God. So where do we see this theme of worship coming up in chapters 17 and 18? Well, I think it shows up several places. First, let's consider the prostitute again. In, in 18.7, it says, Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. Do you see that word glory there? She glorified herself. Instead of giving glory to God, which is what we should do, she gave glory to herself. And God's verdict then is that she was worthy of punishment. 
Okay, where else do we see this theme of worship? Well, here's an interesting one in verses 12 through 14, which I'll put up on the screen. The ten kings make war against the Lamb, who is called the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. So, obviously, if Jesus is Lord, we should submit to him. Instead, these ten kings, they make war against him. And something, I, I learned this, I, I heard this before, but I read it again this week. In Rome, the emperor was called the King of Kings. Well, I have a news flash for the emperor of Rome. He's not. And he knows this by now, because he's met his maker, and he realized that he did not make himself. He is not the king of kings. And whether it's a Roman emperor or whether it's just any average person like you or me, we have the temptation to assume that we are king, to assume that we are the most important person in the world. But we're not. God is firmly established as Lord of lords and king of kings, and we should worship him. Okay, where else do we see this theme of worship? In 17.8, it talks about the inhabitants of earth whose names have not been written in the book of life. Uh, you get your name written in the book of life by having faith in Jesus Christ, by recognizing your need for him, by receiving him as Savior and Lord. Your name is written in the book of life. But these people, their names were not written in the book of life. And what happens then is when they see the beast, they become astonished or amazed at him and they follow him. You see, it's often been said of the human heart that we will worship someone or something. If you do not worship God, your heart will find someone or something else to worship. And like I said, it might be yourself, it might be some other idol, but you will find someone else to worship. Unfortunately, these people here followed the beast and worshipped him to their demise. That's idolatry. So again, the corrective for us is worship. Then let me show you another way that worship is talked about. Revelation 18.4 says, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. One of the best ways to worship God is to flee from sin. Last Sunday, we talked about in chapter 16, verse 9, where it says, They refused to repent and glorify God. Meaning that if they would have repented of their sin when they became aware of it, that would have been a way that they could have glorified God. And I love this because it means that people like you and me, if we're ever stuck in sin, we have a way that we can worship God. We can turn from sin. Do you ever feel like in your sin, like, oh man, oh, what, a, what an idiot I am. Oh, I, I wish that God would just, you know, I wish I could just hide in a corner and nobody would see me. Well, you know what? That's not the way that we should respond to our sin. If we ever become aware of our sin, we can actually worship God. Think about this. We can bring glory to God by turning away from our sin. So maybe you just want to investigate your own heart right now and see if there's any sin that you've been clinging to and know that the best thing that you can do, you can bring glory and honor to God by turning from your sin. So what we should do we should repent. Confess your sin to God. Admit it to Him. And you know, it's often been said, Alcoholics Anonymous would be one place where they do this, but they start off by saying, Hello, my name is Blank, and I'm an alcoholic. They're admitting their problem. What we should do is admit our sin to God. We should confess it. Don't continue in it any longer. Agree with God that it's wrong, and then ask Him to forgive you. And God is pleased to forgive sinners. How do we know that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God did that in love. 
Like, so again, you think about yourself, you become aware of your sin, and you just feel like an idiot. Don't, don't go there. Recognize the love of God for you, that that's exactly why he sent Jesus for you, and then turn away from your sin. Confess it. Give glory to God. So I think chapter 18, verse 4, isn't just written so that the people of the end times can hear this voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. I think it's written for us now so that we can consider any sin that we might be caught in and that we can flee from it. Don't hang on to your sin. Jesus died to rescue us from sin and death. Don't hang on to it. And if there's anyone out here yet who has not yet given your life to Jesus, if you're not sure that you've ever received him as Savior and Lord, just talk to him right now. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to take his rightful place as King and Lord and worship him. And then for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a while, we still need to talk to him about sin on an ongoing basis. Let's not be so prideful to assume that we don't sin. Let's be humble and Let's repent of our sins. And that is an act of worship. You see, too many people live their lives saying, life is short, live it up, get what you can out of this life. But you know what? The only promise in that kind of a life is judgment. The other life where we give our life to Jesus, yes, there may be difficulty and trouble, and yes, we struggle, but the promise that comes with a life lived for Jesus is the promise of eternal blessing and the promise of God with us even now. So the way I see it, the difference between those who will face wrath and those who will receive blessing has to do with worship. Now I'm not trying to confuse the ideas of the gospel and worship because ultimately those who receive life will be those who have received the gospel message, who have received Jesus. But I want you to see the connection between the gospel and worship. That those who have received Jesus will be the people who worship him. And that if you say that you have received Jesus, but your life is not a life of worship, then something is wrong. And you should question whether Jesus really is King and Lord in your life. Or really what you should do is repent of any sin that's there and confess again that Jesus is Lord and live your life for him. So will we live for God or for an idol? Will we give our lives to Jesus or will we make a life for ourselves? And again, like I said at the beginning, I'm confident of better things in your case. I'm confident that you, even if you hadn't known Jesus until this morning, that you can give your life to him now and receive eternal life. That you can be a worshiper and set your life on the right course by trusting Jesus and following him and what he has for you. And then just real quickly, this message is not just a message for us. God has revealed this message to us about what will come at the end. There will be wrath for all who align themselves with the prostitute and with the beast and with Satan. We should warn them. If there's wrath coming on our friends, on our neighbors, on our family, we should, we should warn them and we should urge them to be reconciled to God. Now just very quickly in conclusion... Revelation 17 through 18 paints a picture in which there will be two sides of a battle. Some people will wage war against Jesus. And it's not much of a war they put up. We'll see it. It's going to be a very quick battle. But others will be with Jesus as worshipers. 
Which side are you on? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for making it so clear to us that there will be some who will follow the ways of wickedness and sin and Satan and this great prostitute to their demise. They will face wrath. But God, we pray that we would be people who repent of our sins, who are humble enough to recognize that you are Lord and you are King, that we would give our lives to you, that we would know Jesus and that we would follow you. God, help us always to be ready to repent whenever you bring sin to our minds, whenever we become convicted by your Holy Spirit. Help us to turn. Help us to follow you in the ways that you have for us. May we be worshipers of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.